and welcome to another episode of Occupied. Today I had the absolute pleasure to speak with the lovely Carissa Dyer uh, around her experience uh, of an eating, having an eating disorder, uh, going right through and into a recovery program for that, uh, right through to now studying occupational therapies impact uh, or potential impact for people with eating disorders uh, through her doctoral capstone. So uh, just a trigger warning, we're going to be talking about eating disorders and the impact that it has on people's lives. If that's a trigger for you, feel free to skip ahead or not listen to this one. Uh, It's definitely uh, an amazing episode. Carissa was just so open and honest and I can't thank her enough. Uh, so strap in, get ready, uh, and roll the episode. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, originally, when I went to undergrad, I was going in as a physical therapy major. Um, And in the States, we don't have, like, this is my physical therapy, like, bachelor degree. Mm at least at my university, we didn't. Um, so I was exercise science with a concentration in physical therapy. Um, but my family and I went on vacation in Florida, like down a little further South in Florida. And, um, we were on the beach and I heard this baby just like wailing, crying. I think I was about, uh, I was about to be a sophomore in college. And, um, I was like, mom, that dad back there who looked so stressed out, um, he had like a little kind of toddler on the sand and then somewhere was a baby wailing and he just looked really stressed. His wife had just walked away with their other child to go into the ocean. And I'm like, I'm going to go ask him if he needs help. And she goes, okay. Um, so yeah, I went up and I'm like, sir, you look really stressed. Like, are you okay? Like, I hear crying. Uh, what, what's going What's wrong? And he's like, oh my gosh, you're a lifesaver. So I start talking to this family who such a small world lives 30 minutes away from where I grew up in Kentucky. And um, the mom comes back and her little boy has Down syndrome. And I love kids. I've always, you know, worked with kids growing up, babysitting kids. And he has down syndrome and I'm just, you know, talking to her about her kid and, um, you know, services that he gets. Cause I tell her I'm a physical therapy exercise science pre PT. And she goes, Oh, well, we really got a lot out of occupational therapy. I'm like, Oh, what's that? And that kind of just started this spiral of me really researching OT. And I just really like how it's more holistic and really client centered where we make our goals based off of what the client wants, not just moving your body, which physical therapy is important. Um, I just feel like they have a different important aspect into someone's plan of care 
than what we do. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. The, there's a spot for all the professions that we have. It's just yeah. OT just, yeah, we, we're, we're unique and we just need to hang yeah. on to that as well. So yeah. So a random uh, oh, connection yeah. from the beach. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, I still keep in contact with that family. I'm still <laughs> friends with mom. Yeah, yeah. And I'm 25 now. And I met them when I was, I think I was about to turn 19. So I've kept in contact with them for a really long time. Um, I was going to do, they do the buddy walk. Um, every year, it's a walk for um, people with Down syndrome in the States. And there are different locations all throughout the US in pretty major cities. Um, and I was going to go to that one that they have a team every year for their son. But uh, circumstances just didn't line up for me to go. But I've still always like wanted to go. That's, uh, so, that's kind yeah. of cool. Yeah, yeah. So did you like change immediately? Like after that experience? Like, yep, now I'm doing OT or um pretty much yeah yeah once I because I was still in summer break at that point but once I got back on campus um for the start of my sophomore year um which that's our second year in undergrad in the states um that's so weird to say that because talking to someone that's not from the U.S. um I've watched enough movies I know things yeah yeah um but yeah, pretty much as soon as I, I got back, I changed my major to, which it's not that much different. It's really like once you get more into like your senior year where the classes start to really vary yeah. on the prereqs for grad school. So, um, but then I decided to pick up a health administration minor um, and a psychology minor. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> so where so you finished now or you're still going my undergrad yep um yeah I graduated my undergrad in 2018 and then I started graduate school for to get my doctorate degree in OT um last January in 2020 so we were about a month and a half into school and we went on spring break and our professors are like we're not sure if you're going to come back. And then we never came back. Oh, so that was great. I had to do cadaver and, um, anatomy and physiology online, which was terrible. Uh, that probably would have been <laughs> my personal preference. I hated doing those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't mind uh, the look. It, it was, was this, it was the smell. I couldn't do it. So online oh, was suited me. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't really care about the smell. I just wanted like the hands-on learning cause I'm paying so much money yeah. even though it's loans right now but i'm just like wow this really sucks yeah because there are pictures yeah. and we're like what are we looking at yeah that doesn't even look like a femur yeah yeah that <laughs> aspect of it i can understand yeah. yeah all right so how how long have you got to go for your doctorate um i graduate in august i actually graduate on my birthday winning august yeah yeah august 13th so i have until the end of that month to get on my own insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> that's how I'm looking at that. But uh, no, I'll be married by that time. So that'll be hopefully good. I can just hop on my future husband's insurance. So yeah, in the States, you get Perks. kicked off of your parents' insurance when you turn 26. I don't even know 
yeah, we don't have that system, so I don't have to worry about yeah. that. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> a very American-type problem, I think. Oh, yes, it is. So what's at, at the moment, obviously going through, you will you do like projects and that sort of like thesis projects and stuff through your doctoral program. What's, what's your sort of current uh, interest area? What area of practice are you leaning towards? Yeah. So mental health. Um, I, like I have it. had. I approve. Yes. Considering <laughs> your podcast is very concentrated <laughs> around that. Um, yeah. Mental health. I didn't even know that OT could do mental health. I kind of had a very basic understanding of what OT can do going into grad school. And now I love it even more than when I told you that I met that family on the beach and decided to change my major. I'm just, yeah, I look at like everything now through an OT lens and I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, Yeah. I, when was it? Fall of last year was when we came back into classes. Um, And I started with a girl in the class ahead of me Um, the mental health specialty pathway. So at my school, um, we have, we're allowed to do small different kind of like specialty clubs. Um, We have a hand club, an older adult club, a NICU peds club, um, an ergonomics and technology club, and now mental health club um, that myself and a girl in the cohort above me founded. And it's still going strong. Um, I'm proud of the people that took over it. I check in on them every now and then just to make sure that they're doing okay. But it, I mean, yeah, cause it's in its second semester of, of running. So I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just like, I hope this works <laughs> and people like it. That's usually how the best ideas start. Yeah. Yeah. That's how pretty much yeah. everything I've ever done started. I have no idea, <laughs> but I'm going to give it a crack. Yeah. We'll yeah. Yeah. So it was so... You said earlier that you did a, a psych subject. Was that sort of where the passion for mental health came from or is that why you enrolled in that subject? You already had an interest in it. Yeah, so I already, I already had an interest in that subject because of my own um, personal experiences with mental health and um, I just don't want anyone to ever feel the way that I have um, because it's a really crappy feeling and no one should ever have to feel that way. That was a very loaded question because I do know why you're here. Obviously. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's so I don't, dive yeah. into it. So your yeah. experience with mental health, uh, what was it? When did it start? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've struggled with body image issues pretty much my whole life. Um, but from like what I can really remember around the age of 10 was, and I really remember struggling like hardcore with body image, what I ate, um, how I looked at other girls, how I compared to other girls and how I wanted boys to see me and what I thought boys liked. Um, and growing up, you know, where I grew up in a I grew up in a very Southern, in a Southern, very conservative um, Christian Catholic town in Kentucky. 
And a lot of the time, um, you know, mental, mental health wasn't talked about. I mean, I feel like recently, not a surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like recently, um, within the past like five years, mental health has been more and more present. And I feel like it's now been the most present it has ever been. Um, but yeah, I, I developed, um, I, I want to say I developed mild anorexia when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and then at the age of 16, I developed bulimia. Um, and at age 23, I finally decided I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I got myself into a partial hospitalization program. Um, and I've been in recovery ever since, and I'm 25. So the... I guess start with the the. Uh, you said you had mild anorexia as a start with. Yeah, yeah, just kind of mild. What did anorexia. that? How, what did that look like? Like, how did that present? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I also have played soccer for also pretty much my whole life. Um, around the age of four was when I I think joined my first team. Um, it just started by you know really kind of had a lot of body dysmorphia, um, restricting more than I should have at the age of 10. Um, but I knew that I couldn't restrict to the point to where it would raise concern with my parents. Um, you were aware of that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Because I saw how the other girls at my school ate, how they looked. And I'm like, I want to look like that. My thighs, I was so self-conscious about my thighs because I have I've soccer thighs. I've played soccer since I was four. So I'm like, my thighs are bigger than any other girl's thighs. They're fat. I hate them. And um, I thought that by eating the way that Claire, not the name of a girl in my class, but Claire, eating, eating how she did, I would get to look like her, um, which was not the case. Because if we all ate the same thing every single damn day, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, if I ate the same thing every damn day and as everyone else, and we all did the same exact workout, we would all still look so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I didn't know at the time, for your information. Um, we were not taught feelings. That's kind of how it is in the South, in the U.S., you, the only emotions you're allowed to show are happiness and anger and pissed off occasionally. So different from anger. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're evolving in America a little bit with feelings, at least on the side of social media that I'm on now. Cause I completely did like a clean, clean sweep of all my social media once I got into recovery. Um, yeah, but that really, I feel like that really shaped how I then coped with everything that I was feeling as a kid. Um, Cause I mean, I didn't have a way to say, I feel self-conscious about my body because of this, 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 and this. And this is why, how do I deal with this? So this would have been just for context, uh, probably yeah. late nineties ish when you were 10, mid nineties, late nineties. Um, 
It was actually early 2000s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I was born in 96. That makes me feel old. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you because know, I'm just trying to like, so my mm-hmm. generation was the first generation, well, probably the last generation that remembers the time before the internet. Uh, I'm assuming you don't. It's always been there. I don't know. I really wasn't. No. I I don't remember being on the internet until I was like around 10 or 11. Okay. So, I mean, it could have been there, but I just wasn't allowed to be on it. So, obviously, social, social media sort of came in that mid-2000s-ish era, which is, you know, probably a <laughs> fairly high developmental time for someone who was oh, your yeah. age. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that... Play, obviously, you, you talked about comparing yourself to just the girls at school and what they ate and that sort of stuff. Do you feel like mm-hmm. something like social media or were there other influences that also... Like, I know um, there's been talk about, you know, those magazines that, that girls read, like Cosmopolitan and stuff, like comparing mm-hmm. and creating unrealistic... Uh, like image yeah. standards and that sort of stuff. Do you feel like there was any other influences other than just seeing the girls at school around oh, that yeah. time? Yeah, because I did, I was always on a competitive soccer team with other girls. Um, and I felt like my body looked so drastically different than theirs. I'm like, I want to look like them too. So not only the girls at school, in grade school, but also the girls on my soccer team, um, and I, I, not that I think, I do know that because I looked at those girls at my school with such high admiration, I, I was bullied a lot in grade school. I came in, um, in second grade at, at my school. So I was eight and I was the only girl in my class with braces and glasses. And like, I needed those because if not, I would have talked very strangely, mm. um, I had braces for four and a half years. So like two sets, two, two sets of braces in four and a half years. Well, they worked because your teeth look lovely. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And yes, I do know that they worked. (laughs) They do look very lovely. Um, But yeah, I just, I got made fun of. I was brace face and four eyes. And I also, my hair looked like it was, it was a boy, boy cut. Cause my hair, my mom wanted my hair short because it was less to take care of. Easy to manage. I remember my yes. I remember my mom telling my sister that as well when we were kids. Yeah. Sure yeah. Easy to manage. Yeah, easy to get me out the door, easy to manage. There I I just know that there were a lot of things and I was seeking that approval from them um because I wanted to be friends with them. I was the, I was the newest kid in school. Everyone in my grade at that point went to preschool, daycare, kindergarten like they went through it all together because that's just the kind of you know, area that I lived in. Everybody knew everybody. This might be an odd question, but given this is completely not scientific at all, (laughs) given the two people that I have spoken Uh to on this podcast around body dysmorphia have both Uh played soccer for the majority of their lives. Uh And that's where, again, the, like, like you called them soccer thighs uh, was a big thing. Do you feel like, sports in particular soccer at least in the like where you grew up 
there's a, a culture of that or you just feel like that might just be coincidence? There, there's a culture. Um, there definitely is. I mean, there was research done when I was doing my literature review for my capstone, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, I found an article. I didn't end up using it, but I just found it really fascinating. There was an article that was done and it was like dance, volleyball, gymnastics, and swimming are the sports that have the highest um, numbers for body dysmorphia, eating disorders, um, and like major health issues based on body image because it's mainly heavily female focused and it's very much concentrated on how your body looks. Mm -hmm. I do think that soccer, there is a big part in it um, though, because I mean, you're in a locker room with girls, like you're, you're changing your, your jerseys, you're taking showers, like you're going to see what each other's bodies look like. And that comparison is going to happen, which happened a lot in undergrad because I also played soccer for my university um and that happened a lot to the point to where like I would I don't know if this is too much information but to where to the point to where I would have an hour-long binge and purge two to three times a day in college And I would make sure, like, I would plan my day around when that was going to happen and when I had soccer practice and when I had class. I mean, I seriously, I don't know how I survived undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. Just that added stress would, of just planning Mm -hmm. that would be ridiculous. Oh, yeah. 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 Deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really started to get bad when I was a senior. Um, in high school, I, around this time of year, so this time of year is always a really hard time of year for me. Um, everything was like just going down the shitter at that point. Um, yeah, everything was just going down the shitter at the, at that point, my senior year, even though I was, um, committed to play at an undergrad university and that was my dream for college, um, I got, I got the sickest I've ever been. Um, and I still didn't feel like I looked good enough. Um, my grandpa ended up passing away, which really sent me down a dark spiral. Yeah. And it, it was just really, really bad. And, um, the guy that I ended up dating a little bit before I went to my university, um, he, he could tell that like something was off with me. Mm. He couldn't, he couldn't exactly pick up what, but he then figured out because he's just a very intuitive guy. He's like, you need to get help. Like you eating and then going into the bathroom and purging, like that's not normal. I knew that it wasn't normal. But that was my, that was my secret. That was the one thing that I could control at that point because so much had gone out of my control at that point in my life. Because my grandpa was the one thing besides my aunt who is also now passed away. Um, he was the one thing like that really held the glue to my dad's side of the family together, and he was the only grandpa that I had left remaining on this earth. Mm-hmm. So it it was it 
took a lot out of my family and myself. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. That's a lot, um, a lot to happen in a short period of time, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, getting into recovery, um, it really was my fiancé. Like, he, he saved my life. A hundred percent saved my life. Um, and now I'm going to start crying because he's so awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's happy tears. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are happy tears and he knows that too. He, he really does. Um, yeah, he, he does. We've been engaged for two years. Um, we've been together for almost five. Um, it'll be five next month that we've been together for five years. I met him playing college soccer. Um, He was a soccer player as well, or he just liked watching women's soccer. (laughs) No, he he also Both. played for yes, yeah. No. He liked watching me play soccer. Yeah. Um, he also played for my university. Yep. Uh, that's kind of how we knew of each other, and then, um, but he thinks that like I don't know his story is a little bit different than mine, but I always think that I always story. are. Yeah. Um, but I met him cause I actually needed help with a class that I was taking and I tutored, um, anatomy and physiology for my university at this like little tutoring center that we have on campus. And he tutored like a computer class. I have an Apple and it was for Microsoft and I don't use Microsoft. So I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, we also didn't, we also didn't work the same hours. So like I never ran into him really. And, um, had asked exhausted all of my options of people that I knew that could possibly help me. And I'm like, well, I know this guy, hopefully he doesn't think I'm too stupid. (laughs) And so I went in and I'm like, Oh yeah, you're from the soccer team, whatever. Thought he was really cute. Kept going to see him. I almost gave up because I'm like, are you seriously not picking up what I'm putting down, dude? And hard to get. No, he's just stupid. (laughs) Wow. That didn't take long to turn around. (laughs) <laughs> no he, he's amazing he, you know, 30 seconds later he's stupid <laughs> he just did not pick up on my hints that i was dropping because i apparently wasn't that's just, yeah that's yeah works. yeah he didn't pick up on the signals that i was giving him and he he says i wasn't being obvious enough but i know i was anyway yeah not getting into that debate yeah um but happy ending we're getting married so just before, I guess, you met him with regards to your then, well, it would, was bulimia by that stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was, how was that impacting your sort of day-to-day life? What was it, what was it? I mean, like, kind of like I said before, it, I planned besides like soccer practice and classes, which were like the times were set of when I had practice and when I had class and I outside of that, I would plan my entire day around when I could binge and purge. And the bad thing was, was when I first, my first few months of being into grad school, I lived with soccer girls and I had a direct roommate who I lived in the same room as. So that meant that we shared a bathroom. So I'm like, well, shit, how am I going to keep doing what I'm doing? But in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is a chance for me to get better because I thought that I could fix myself. I can stop at any point that I want. Mm-hmm. That was my, that was my mindset. Um, so, but up until that point, the yeah, like you still was, wanted to keep it quite like a secret. Oh yeah, yeah. That was that was like my 
dirty little secret, kind of like the American All American Reject song. Wow, that's the throwback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but it really, it really was. Um, and I didn't. That was that was mine. That was one thing that I could control. And college soccer was so uncontrollable too, because I. I was I wasn't playing as much as I wanted to. I was gaining weight because I wasn't able to binge and purge. I didn't have a lot of friends on the team because of a lot of inner teammate drama that was happening. So much was out of my control that that was the also the only thing that I could control. Yep. Um, so yeah. You, again, I don't know how I survived undergrad. Really. So just for those that might be very new to this sort of area, when you talk about binge and purge, what is that? Yeah, so a binge is eating an excessive amount of food that you would not normally eat. And purging is then getting rid of that food in any sort of way that gets it out of your system, either by vomiting, um, making yourself poop, basically, by taking laxatives or um, excessive exercise, which I would do all of the above. Um, so, which so with the with the excessive food, you're talking about like essentially just eating until you're absolutely stuffed. Oh or, yeah. Yep. And then mm-hmm. like immediately trying to get yep. it out. Yep. And what was I guess obviously you look at it very differently nowadays, but back then, do you recall what you obviously the purpose was to like control your weight or lose weight, et cetera. But can you sort of, do you remember what the basic theory was that you were thinking of? Like, what is it about? Um, What is it about that cycle that you felt was going to help lose weight? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, to myself, it's still kind of a mystery. Like I know that I did that because that was the, only thing that I could control at that time. Mm -hmm. It was also my only way of coping with a lot of emotional pain that I was in that I didn't know how to deal with because I didn't have the coping skills to deal with all of the, all of the weight that I was carrying on my shoulders from my childhood, from soccer trauma, from relationship trauma in the past it was just a big, heavy weight. Do you think, because I guess, so when you were actually going through the binge aspect of it, was mm-hmm. it, because I'm, I'm working on a theory here in my head, trying to work okay. it out. <laughs> so obviously most people, like, you know, I guess what you call happy hormones are released when they're eating mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Would yeah. you, when you were doing the binge, was it, trying to sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, like chase that high of that sort of, this makes me feel good. And then the binge was, uh, the purge was more like, what have I done to myself? Like more that sort of guilty thing. Or was it while you were eating, you're like, I'm going to have to get rid of this. This is terrible. This is like, we beating yourself up while you were doing the, the binge aspect and then purging, or was it chasing the high and then getting rid of the, I guess the, I was going to say the evidence, but the, the, yeah. remnants, no, the damage, it, it, trying to undo the damage, yeah. I guess. No, sometimes it was getting rid of the evidence. It was, it was a little bit of both. I mean, it would really depend on the day that I had. 
if I had had a really shitty day, it was to get to feel something. Yeah. To at all costs. Yeah. Um, Good, bad or otherwise. Yeah. But then other days when I had felt too much and it was a shitty day, it was to numb out. So that that was kind of part of the purpose too, chasing that high or numbing out from everything that I had experienced that day. So it's kind of, I think, a lot, and we've spoken about this on the podcast before, people that might use illicit substances to kind of like self-medicate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I was 100% self-medication. Essentially self-medicating with. Yeah, I guess so, not necessarily the food, but I, I would assume it would be more the hormones released during yeah. sort of food process. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, and it's it's an addiction just like anything else. Um, I mean, there are withdrawal symptoms mm. that I went through when um, I was going through PHP. Um, that's what we call partial hospitalization here. We just abbreviate it PHP. Um, which actually I left out this part too, (laughs) my mom. So I had told my mom when I was 18 that I had an eating disorder. She also kind of figured it out on her own too, because she could tell that something was off with me. Um, and so she tried to get me in to, she tried to get me into therapy. She tried to get me into an inpatient children's hospital in my area. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to, okay. I'm like, well, shit, now that that means that I have to give this thing up mm, Yeah. that I've been, that that's the only thing I could control. Um, and I don't remember any of this at all because at this point, I mean, from probably the age of 18 till 22, I dissociated from my body. I don't remember a lot of college because I wasn't present. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, I remember a lot of, like, my relationship with my fiancé at that time, but, like, my day-to-day soccer, mm. specifically training for soccer. And then when I would be home alone at my apartment, I don't remember a lot of that. The only thing I really remember from college is time spent with him because he literally saved my life. Um, but I, I didn't want to go to that because that meant that I would have to give something up. So I'm like, I'll go see a dietitian. So that'll solve all my problems. So what was the, what was the, or what did you see the purpose of telling your mom? Like if you weren't necessarily keen on giving that up, what was your thinking with regards to telling it? You just wanted to vent and talk to someone about it, or you just wanted to not hold the whole burden yourself or. I think it was not holding the whole burden. This is, has been something that I haven't, explored in therapy just yet um because I still am in therapy and I I don't know that's a really good question that I can't fully answer for you right now um I think it was I didn't want to hold that big weight Mm. and keep it on myself I wanted someone else to have to carry that too um because I think for for a lot of people like they're the types of reasons someone might reach out to someone else. And it's not necessarily, I think being the, the person that someone reaches out to quite often, people just automatically assume that if someone's reached out to you, they want help, they want to change. 
Um, yeah. They want to fix. Yeah. They want you to help fix it, kind of thing. And that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, it's not even that it's not really often the case. It's it's probably majority not the case that that's that yeah. is what's happening. Where some people yeah. just want to share that load. They need to get it off their chest, like we were talking about earlier. Like having that kind of, I guess, secret for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. That yeah. that alone without the like actual physical effects of what you were doing to yourself yeah. just holding that and not wanting anyone to find out the effort goes that goes into actually trying to hide mm. that from people can oh, yeah. be a huge burden so having someone yeah. that you can talk to that you can share yeah. that you can yeah. you know spread that load a little bit uh yeah. can be a yeah. huge help and and in my experience working with many people not just eating disorders but um, people with a whole range of different diagnoses, quite often that's what they're looking for when they first reach out. Yeah. And they may not yeah. be in a place to uh, want to change yet. But yeah. I've always looked at that as, well, even if you're not wanting to change, like that's that's a good step forward. Mm-hmm. At least you've recognized that you can't do it on your own, but no matter what it is, yeah. whether it's giving up or just holding that secret, at least you've sort of, come to that realization to start with yeah and I don't I don't blame my mom for trying to get me into therapy at that point because um I mean I'm I'm her little girl like (laughs) she's gonna want to do whatever she can to protect me and I just wasn't I also didn't know at the time how to tell her I just want you to hold this with me But also my mom, mom being my mom and a mother being a mother, they're not going to hold on to that because that's their child. Like they're going to want to make sure that their child is healthy, especially before I move three and a half hours away from her. Yeah, definitely. And it's like I said, that's it's most people's natural reaction is to want to help to like, Uh how can we fix this? Like most people Mm -hmm. are fixers and that's. Oh yeah. It it comes from a good place and it's a really I mean I'm the same. I I've yeah. trained and I've worked in this area for however long and I still yeah. struggle to, you know, switch that aspect off sometimes, but yeah. it's a hard um I guess habit to break that your initial reaction is wanting to fix and help um when that's not always what they the person needs or or wants and sometimes they just yeah. Just taking a step back and just listening can be mm-hmm. a, a good first step. So if yeah. anyone does approach you, then just take a step back and, and listen to start with. And I'll tell you if they mm-hmm. want help, like if they want to quit, if they want to, whatever it is, if they want help, they want support, generally they'll tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's something that um, like now I'm really good at communicating that. Like I'll just say to my mom, dad, my younger brother or even my fiance, like, I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to listen. I don't need you to say anything. I don't want advice. I just need you to listen. And they'll typically do that most of the time. (laughs) I would say they've gotten a lot better at just listening now than you've trained them well. Yeah. When I first got into therapy, they're like, but I'm like, no, just listen. That's awesome. So mm-hmm. from, I guess, as bad as it got and then you met your fiancé? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I met him at uh, the age of 20. 
Okay. So I just turned 20 at that point, And then we started dating in November of 2016. I had to look behind me because the sign behind me has our anniversary date on it. Oh my God. You don't remember? Oh, (laughs) it's been that long. Shame. I know. (laughs) That's right. I will probably forget mine as well. Yeah. Um, So it was a couple of years before you got into the rehab, like after meeting him. Was Mm -hmm. that relationship with him, were you obviously, well, not obviously, but I'm assuming you were still trying to keep it secret at that point. Yeah, and I was, and I was good at it too. Yeah. At that point, I had been with him three years when I told him what was going on. And he's, at first he was just in disbelief. Like, he's like, no, no. Um, I'm like, yeah, it's been going on. Like I told him the whole shebang. Um, and he's like, okay, well, we need you to get help. Like we, we can do this together. Like we, him being a fixer, he's very much a fixer and wants to help. And he, he's like, we can fix this together. We can read all the books. We can fix this together. You don't need to go to somewhere professional yet. We can try and do this together. Because at that point, I didn't want to tell my parents. I was too ashamed. Because there's a lot of shame around yeah. a, around addiction in general. Mm. Um, and admitting you need help is one thing that I am working on. I'm not very good at asking for help. Um, and he's like, we don't have to tell your parents yet. Like, it's going to be okay. I ended up having to go get professional help and anyone who is struggling with an eating disorder listening, please go get professional help. They're trained to, that's what they're trained to do is to help you get better. And they have science behind it to help you. Um, so around, uh, I think end late November, December was when I got into rehab and I started getting sober and then, so it'll be two years coming up in this November. That'll be two years sober. Um, and when you're, when you're talking about sober, is that sober from being yes. Yes, from from the from since from the initial start, I have had you know minor relapses, um, which are to be expected when you get into recovery Mm -hmm. um, from anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I would hope not like hard drugs, really. But it it uh, still, trust me, it still works. I know, I know, I know. Recovery is not a linear process. No, it is not. Um, Yeah. And I, I mean, now I think my last relapse was like three months ago. So, but the process of me being in recovery has been almost two years and every day gets, you know, a little bit better. I have a lot of podcasts that I listen to when I'm not in therapy. Um, Glennon Doyle, We Can Do Hard Things is one of them. If you have not listened to her podcast, We Can Do Her Things, you need to. This is not free advertisement. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is free advertisement for her, but she's married to Abby Wambach, um, who is like a golden boot winner, women's national team, women's national, U.S. national team soccer player. 
she's phenomenal. Um, yeah, they talk about a lot of hard things on their podcast and it's pretty awesome. Um, that's cool. I like it. Yeah. 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 But yeah, because of my experience, that's why I want to help people now in mental health with being an OT and doing my caps. Yeah. 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 So with, I guess, prior to going into rehab and getting help, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that the planning and you discussed a little bit before the planning and just the thinking about food uh, and Mm -hmm. like planning your binge and purge and that sort of stuff would take up like a huge amount of time and energy during your day. Yeah. And I really started thinking about the process of recovery and like trying to fix myself first before asking for help. Um, probably in April of 2019 because in 2019 was when I started going to rehab in November of 2019 I'm like picturing a calendar in my head right now um yeah in May of 2019 I ran a half marathon thought that like running eating clean which there's no such thing as eating clean. Um, doing doing that was going to be my fix. And being a fitness junkie, which I already kind of was because I was a college athlete, but even diving more into that was going to fix that. And it didn't. It only made it worse. Um, and within a year's time span, I ran two half marathons, which destroyed my body. Um, but running marathons isn't healthy. No, especially the way that I was doing it in general. Wasn't yeah. No, yeah. Um, any sport, the way, any it, sport that puts you your body through extremes, yeah. it's not like I. I've talked about this again multiple times. Like I have done yeah. powerlifting and coach powerlifting for quite a while. Powerlifting is not yeah. a healthy sport. Your body is not designed to squat, bench, or deadlift that much weight. Like the things you're putting your body through aren't healthy. Yes, it's fun. And sometimes it might be worth the risk, but it's not healthy. No, it's not. And like just what I was doing to my body at that time was so bad. Um, But when he proposed, Lee proposed to me in 2019, August of 2019, also around my birthday. Um, yeah. You're going to have to get married. Birthday. You're going to have to get married on your birthday. It seems to be the only date you remember. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're not getting married on my birthday. We're getting married in May. Um, but May is also like one of my favorite months. So that makes me happy. Um, but yeah, I'm like, well, if, you know, I want to have kids and I want to have, be healthy and start a family, like, this has got to go. And by this, I mean my eating disorder, my messed up intrusive thought thinking needs to go. Um, and it was actually my chiropractor at the time who caught that I was not eating very well, sat me down, had a heart to heart and said, we need to get you better because you're about to go to grad school and grad school is no joke. 
You need to make sure that you are healthy so that you can take care of other people. And at first, I, I mean, I was an ABA therapist. I was working with kids with autism and running around and doing all the things. And I'm like, you need to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. Like, that's a load of crap. It's not a load of crap. Like, it's so true. Because looking back, I could have taken care of my kids so much better than I was initially. Yeah. Um, and I, I, re, I go through some days where I regret that so much, but I also wasn't in the mental space to be able to say that to myself yet. So yeah, a lot of compassion and grace with having to learn how to deal with everything in therapy. It's interesting. Um, again, something I've taught to, to the students that I work with and mm-hmm. spoken about with a lot of people is the, the concept of behavior being language. And oh, yeah. I think that a lot of people, when they sort of, when you start opening that discussion up, automatically think kids. But my, like, I've never worked with kids and I still have that theory because it holds firm for adults as well. And adults mm-hmm. are usually just either too proud or stubborn to actually admit that everything that they are doing, every decision they are making Mm -hmm. is telling people something about them. Yeah. Um, And I could probably almost guarantee that, yes, you were very good at hiding it, but I think it's one of those things in hindsight, I guarantee you there were signs that someone – if they had oh. been experienced in that uh, mm-hmm. area and actually knowing what signs to look for, oh, yeah. um, would have been able to to pick up that kind of stuff. A hundred percent would have. I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you right. When I would be in the lunchroom, either at undergrad, even especially in high school when I was at my lowest, my fingernails would turn purple because I would be so cold. Because now I have chronic anemia because of that, mm-hmm. because of my bulimia. Um, but my iron levels would be so low and I would be so tired all the time. My fingernails would turn purple. My lip, the outside of my lips would get a little purpley blue. I would disappear for 10 to 15 minutes after I would eat, which I also would not eat very much at lunch um, disappear for 10 to 15 minutes to go purge. Um, my skirt for my uniform, um, cause I went to all girls Catholic high school and we had to wear uniforms. My skirt for my uniform, I could almost wrap it around my waist twice because of how much weight I had lost at that point. Um, my hair, I could, take it like this, which my hair now is so healthy, healthy as it has ever been. I could take it and break it in half because it was that brittle and weak And my fingernails. If I like tried to bend it just a little bit, it would snap off. All pretty good signs that something's not quite. Oh yeah. And I also, I also lost my menstrual cycle for five years. Yeah. That part doesn't surprise me. No, no. And I mean, I'm not 
I'm not going to tell anybody. Like my fingernails are purple. Look, I'm so cold. I have zero energy. I'm not going to tell anyone that. I mean, like go to the doctor. Yeah. And I, uh, but they're, I think for most people, they're not things that people would automatically go, Oh, eating disorder. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They're like, like, Oh, haha, you're so cold. You're always cold. Yeah. It's just because you're thin or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Feel the cold more than most people, something like that. Yeah. Um, Which I still am always cold because I have chronic anemia now. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. In terms of obviously back then, it was, I guess, controlling everything and had an influence on everything you do. How oh, yeah. do you find? Have you found that aspect of it changed? Like right now, like now that you've done a couple of years of therapy, do you oh, find yeah. that you still are thinking about it all the time but the thinking's different or there's times when you've not been not had to think about it like how's how does it present nowadays yeah um I will say I call um I call my eating disorder voice in my head I call it ed um it's from a book by Jenny Schaefer um life before life before ed I think I read it when I first got into recovery um and she was bulimic called her eating disorder voice ed so i naturally adopted I feel like that i've but heard that before you probably have yeah you probably have she's incredible um i aspire to meet her one day but i ed, there are lots of days when ed is not even in my head at all he's very quiet he's asleep there are other days where he is it's a bullhorn in my ear and I can't get him to shut up. Those days are normally um, the loudest days are normally when I'm about to start my menstrual cycle or I have not been taking my medication, my anxiety medication regularly. Um, yeah. Or I've ha- either had like a fight with my parents or my fiance. Some um, kind of stressor. Yeah, some kind of stressor. So something, I, again, this is something I've spoken about with my students. I don't think I've ever spoken it too much on the podcast, but I've spoken about it with my students uh, a fair bit around um, something that's really helpful with a lot of uh, different issues within mental health is externalizing it. So being mm-hmm. able to separate yourself from the issue and oh, I was yeah. going to ask you about that before, but obviously you've just described exactly that. Yeah, uh, that yeah. You've even given it its own name. Oh yeah. Is yeah. that something that um, is that something that came from like during being in therapy, or is this something that you started to do like back in the throes of it a few years ago? Um, I kind of I would say I would kind of start back in the throes of it, like a little bit like when I was really really struggling like would be on the bathroom floor crying I would be like why is this happening why am I so effed up and messed up in the head I felt like I was going absolutely insane and since I've experienced you know mild anorexia not you know 
very severe um and then severe bulimia i would i would say the bulimia out of the spectrum of all of the eating disorders in my opinion is the hell most hellish of the two so you've just like so you've talked about there about it being an impact on you why is it happening to you so obviously back then you weren't separating it from you it was no it was still yeah and your issue and yeah but i but i could feel that it was putting it was literally almost like a weight or dumbbell on my mind on my head like why am i am the way that i am what is this thing going through me and inside of me um but externalizing it has helped it a lot yeah, I think the the discussions I've had with people and even in clinical situations when I've talked mm-hmm. about that, um, externalization of an issue helps people process it because yeah. it's kind of like when you're too close to an issue to actually be able to <laughs> think correctly about it or make a correct decision, getting a second, oh, yeah. it's like almost like getting a second opinion can sort of help mm-hmm. you sort stuff out. So externalizing it, and that's why I really like, on terms of OT, like some of the more visual models like Kawa and that sort of stuff because it helps people externalize what's going on in their head. Then they can see it on paper and using a range yeah. of sensors to process it as opposed to just sitting on your own thoughts and trying to ruminate and trying to work it out like that, which does oh, yeah. doesn't work. Oh, it's yeah. so and, difficult to do. Yeah, and at the time, like I was my own worst enemy. A lot of the times I still am because I'm my hardest critic. Um, That's not uncommon. Yeah, it's and yeah, and it's not uncommon. So, so do you still get, I guess, urges or like? Obviously, it's being looked at as an addiction, and as most mm-hmm. other addictions, it's um sort of habit versus hormone kind of triggers Mm -hmm. do you still get uh i don't know i guess you'd call it a craving or something yeah um to binge purge um not so much binge anymore that pretty much the binge part of it is pretty much wiped out of my system because now i do have other coping mechanisms to where when i do feel anxious or something has gone on either externally that I can't control or I'm, you know, feeling some sort of way internally, I have those coping mechanisms now to where I nip it in the butt before it even starts or before those thoughts even come, yep. come about. Um, the purging, it's, I would say if that does happen at all, um, which is not frequently anymore, really. And if it, that does happen, I mean, I let my fiance know. I talk about it with my therapist. We get to the bottom of why did I feel that way? X, Y, Z. It's typically because I ate a fried chicken sandwich and I felt like shit about myself afterwards. And I feel like a grease ball and all these other things that I'm feeling. I, even for people that may Mm -hmm. not, uh, I guess identify as having a an eating disorder, a fried chicken sandwich probably would still make them feel like shit too. So, yeah, 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 <laughs> just makes you feel heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 
I mean, that's really a lot of the times when it's, when it's triggered, um, it's by something that I ate. Um, I think it, I think really like only one time it was a purge was, and it wasn't even like a, yeah, a purge was triggered by something external that happened. Okay. So it's more about nowadays, like recognizing those feelings Mm-hmm. when they first yeah. come up as opposed to like letting them get to that sort of crisis point and then just oh, yeah. and build, to get rid of them. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 And building up to that point. Yeah. Knowing what you know now and mm-hmm. studying what you're studying now. Yes. How do you see, or do you see any place for OT in the, I guess, rehab slash, of rehab of eating disorders, uh, I guess, practice area. I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> what a coincidence. Because, yes, because that's why I'm here. Um, yes, I do. So that is what my whole capstone is about. I am doing, um, I'm doing an occupation-based life skills program development for individuals with eating disorders in an inpatient uh, behavioral health hospital, um, which that already sounds I signed. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm about to sign the contract with the hospital in a couple of days. Just have to like cross all the T's, dot all the I's, all that stuff. But um, yeah, I I'm really excited about the opportunity that I was able to find for myself. Um, and it's in the area where my fiance and I will be living once we're married. So that's even better. Hope I get hired by them, you know, after I'm done, because that's the goal um, to pay off all the student debt. And I'm also going to um, Colorado for a week to shadow my expert mentor where she works. Um, so I am so grateful for that experience too. That's happening like right in the beginning of my capstone um in april of next year yep i don't even know what month it is what month is it october (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's been a long year yeah it has been a long year (laughs) in april of 22 yeah that's when i'm going that's when everything starts for for our capstone um so i'm really excited to be in colorado because it's so beautiful and to have that experience and to be by the mountains and all the things. So in terms of your journey, I, I'm mm-hmm. assuming because you didn't mention it, you didn't actually have any contact with an OT during your no, rehab I did not. process. I you did feel not. like it and may have helped. Do you feel like you, I don't, not necessarily mm-hmm. miss out on something, but do you feel like there was a place in your journey that an OT may have been of assistance or... Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I do feel, I mean, in the partial hospitalization, I'm, I would have to be a little more seasoned to know what my role would be in that particular setting. Yeah. But um, coming as, as a student and a new grad in August next year, um, I definitely see a place for OT because it affects your whole day, mm. everything you do. And um, I mean, there are 
food rules, there are food rituals, there are food routines, like without, I mean, my literature review that I have pulled up right now, just to like, kind of help me think about all this stuff. Um, all of that OT lingo is peppered in throughout my literature review because it does take up, you know, every occupation. Um, is there much out there already, like in the evidence base directly from OT? Or is this a relatively sort of new space on terms of the evidence base anyway um, for OT um, to be moving into? There's very little research out there. And the research that I did find is very recent. Um, and there is current research being done right now. I actually, um, I was a participant in a study over at the States, um, an anonymous study for like genealogy eating disorders um, and how it makes up your genetic makeup, which I, my family does have a history of addiction. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that I ended up with that gene mm -hmm. just because of my family history. Um, Cause it was either me or my younger brother. So. Do you, um, do you think in, in your research and what you found from the, the literature, it sounds like the treatment, the current treatment, the current best practice mm -hmm. treatment is more around uh, or probably more similar to like addiction treatment that would go ahead for, for other things. Mm -hmm. Is yeah, it similar yeah. or is it like a completely different setup? So what, from what I experienced, we, it was similar to addiction, like addiction for alcohol. Yep. Um, we followed the AA model okay. and um, which helped me a lot in recovery. I did um, wonder I where really, the like sobriety term came from. Cause it's not something I've heard used in association. Yeah. With yeah. But yeah. Makes, and I, sense. Yeah. And I mean, I use that because of, you know, where I did my therapy, yep. um, because we use that, that as, the uh, that was the, that, that's just the lingo that everyone used. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean like with mealtime, like it would have been really helpful to have like an OT there, especially, um, like in an inpatient setting, you're going to have a lot more hopefully a lot more tools at your fingertips, like with a full kitchen. We didn't have a full kitchen where I went. It would have been really nice to have like a full kitchen with a stove so that I could focus on like preparing pasta, which was a huge trigger food for me. Um, and like taking in all those senses and smells because I'm a very sensory seeking person, Yeah. Um, which also explains why I then did seek out bulimia because it is a very sensory mm. addiction. Um, so now my coping mechanisms are very sensory as well, but having that sensory input to help and cope with that stuff. Um, because having an OT there would have been really helpful. I love weighted blankets and we didn't have any Me of those too. there. I, That's yeah. So good. Yeah. I not for love everyone, but so good yes. for those that, uh, yeah. Do you relate to them? Uh-huh. Yeah. I am very sensory seeking. My roommate, on the other hand, will run in the complete opposite direction of a weighted blanket. She hates sensory input. Um, <clears throat> but that, um, like shopping for clothes, that's another intervention that can be done for individuals with eating disorders and should be done because I didn't find any research 
and I did a lot um, to try and, you know, break that perseveration of someone's appearance in the mirror. Yeah. And I mean, if you see a size, whatever, is that going to trigger something else? I want to fit into a size extra small, not a small, because that's not small enough. Yeah. I don't look good enough to fit in the whatever. Um, and just the intrusive thoughts that come with that. Um, and then like eating at restaurants, like I would have, and when I wrote my literature review too, I tried to think of what did, what did I struggle with and how would that apply to this? Yeah. How did it impact my everyday going to restaurants? Couldn't do it. Could not. And if I did, it was bad news bears. So having that exposure, having outings and being in that social setting, because it also impacts your socialization skills. Hmm. Especially, right. especially like if you've developed that uh, or any condition really from such mm-hmm. a young age, like they're the years yeah. that most people engage with friends and, you know, yeah. lose friends, win friends. That's where they develop those coping mechanisms and those skills yeah. and how to develop those relationships and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. if your primary occupation, for lack of a better term, is looking after your eating disorder, then you're not yeah. putting the time in to develop those skills. So, yeah, that makes perfect yeah. sense that that's something that people are going to struggle with. Yeah, and, I mean, my social skills – in high school and in college, like I would try to turn to alcohol as a different way to cope. I just hated hangovers. And I don't think anyone particularly likes them. No, <laughs> but it was just, it was so much different though than what I would experience through Ed. And yep. um, that was a different type of socialization too that I tried to use to cope with everything to numb out sometimes i think that's that's probably especially yeah college students of that age like that's Mm -hmm. the the normal social behavior so yeah yeah Yeah. even harder if you can't engage in that or don't want to engage in that Mm -hmm. or don't enjoy that because that's another thing that sort of isolates you from your peer group oh yeah yeah and um another like intervention that i'm hoping to develop into this program development for this hospital is self-care and leisure exploration. My self-care skills were non-existent now. And I didn't even, I thought that self-care was going to get your nails done, getting your hair done and doing a facial. And I would do those things. And I still, my cup would still be empty. I wouldn't feel like I had recharged my battery at all. Yep. Um, and that's not good to have any form of my self care was binging and purging. Well, I think yeah. Well, to with regards to what you've described so far, like you obviously everyone does need some kind of restorative occupations too. Like you said, yeah. fill your cup. But uh-huh. those things, I would imagine, based on what you've said so far, would just be not necessarily restorative, but just like mm-hmm. here's something I can do to help hide you know, what I'm going through again, oh, yeah. like I can get my hair done and get my nails done so that I sort of 
don't stand out as having you know crappy nails and crappy hair like yeah less attention to draw to those kinds of things the easier it is mm-hmm. to hide uh ed mm-hmm. yeah and um also just like educating because i know that my when i told my parents um that i was still sick and that i wanted to do therapy for real this time um they were in shock and rightfully so they were also very upset and like why didn't you tell us you know why didn't we do this the first time all this stuff and I felt so much shame and they're like we're gonna get you better like it's gonna be okay um and just having I just wish that I also had someone to educate them a lot Mm. and to help them as a parent guide them through that process because I was trying to educate myself through therapy learn how I cope deal with all my prior trauma while also trying to educate my fiance who I lived with and now I have to educate my parents too who are that's a lot who are who are by the by the way they're five and a half hours away because i lived with my fiance and we did not my parents and i did not live in the same state yep yeah so and also i was going to grad also brock i was also going to grad school and like something else on top some little thing just i was about to i was about to enter a whole new phase of my life and i knew that i had to do do the thing to be able to go to grad school to be in the right headspace so yeah I mean I made it out now and like that just that portion I mean it was it was a lot so yeah I mean just like throughout my literature review like I just talk about kind of what I told you like the self-care leisure exploration um going and eating at restaurants um just engage, having their engaging ex- in those usual age appropriate yeah iadls yeah yeah and having exposure challenges the technical term that i found for it is vivo exposure challenges and it can be a weekly intervention for individualized therapy or group therapy um that people can do to also have a community like outing and stuff so because it, it can be overwhelming and overstimulating in a restaurant environment is that something having, that you still do like nowadays um, challenge yourself to i guess do things that you previously couldn't or working on being able to do etc yeah yeah so my therapist and i um we used to do it when i was first with her in outpatient therapy um but now it's kind of you know the exposure challenges have kind of dropped a little bit because i've been doing them just on my own um without her prompting me to do them um but yeah one of my biggest triggers was eating a burrito okay i could not for the life of me get through an entire chipotle burrito without feeling triggered and feeling like i needed my fiance to 
physically lay on top of me until my anxiety attack be your way subsided. to blanket. Yeah, to be my way to blanket. And I mean, he's a little bit taller than I am. He's not that much taller than I am, but having just that other heartbeat on mine too is very regulating when your heart is going a million miles an hour. Yeah. Um I can only yeah, imagine so- what he thought the first time you asked him to try that. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "You want me to do what? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna crush you." I'm like, "No, you're not." It's okay. And if and I if you do, it. and I stop breathing, just get off me and slap me awake. It's fine. I'll be okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll start breathing eventually. <laughs> not sure that's a good first aid, but no, it's it's not. But <laughs> would recommend that to be your first no, coping mechanism. Try this just slap me awake. Yeah um yeah but those very sensory seeking things like I would I would seek and um I had a fidget ring for for a little while when I first started you know managing my anxiety without my eating disorder um and turning to trying to figure out medications to help manage my anxiety symptoms um because it took me about a year to figure out which medication worked best for myself. Um, it's like when I would go shopping, like I would perseverate on just this one thing that I felt just didn't look right in a dress or pants. And I, at first, like, I didn't know how to cope with it. And now I'm just like, Oh, that's there. Okay. Move on. On to the next. So, yeah. Fascinating. I know. It's a, I find this sort of stuff really interesting because it's one of those conditions where most people are like, oh, you're just you know starving yourself because you want to be skinny. Like that's most people's opinion on eating disorders mm-hmm. where they don't, until they actually like know someone or work with someone who has experienced it, it's like a completely it's like speaking another language it's a completely other way that your brain actually processes information and the Mm -hmm. outcomes that it comes to based on that information provided yeah so like two people one with an eating disorder one without can look at the same situation take in the same information and come out with two completely different outcomes from whatever that is just because it's a completely different way of thinking really oh yeah Unfortunately, yeah, it's just not an overly productive one in most cases. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I started to educate my family on a lot of what was going on, you know, inside, because they would just ask the why, like, why did you do this to yourself? And, you know, at the time, I didn't know myself well enough to know why I did that to myself. But like now I can tell them like it's because I felt like I had no control over my life and everything was spiraling out of control. And that was the one thing that I could white knuckle through. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. yeah. Control, control and giving people or, or ensuring people have control, but in a healthy way is is a mm-hmm. massive part of any mental health practice. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. No matter what the, the condition, especially in an acute setting like a hospital, 
people go in there they often don't have choice over anything they don't you know, no. they get brought yeah. food they get told what time that's happening they can't go in or out of the hospital sometimes they you know can't have visitors at certain times like a lot mm-hmm. of their everyday choices that we take for granted are taken away they can't go to the bathroom when they want yeah yeah and if they want to they have to call i'm in an acute care setting right now for my first um level two rotation and every time like we tell patients especially if they're high fall risk don't get up without nursing Hmm. to do anything because we don't want you to fall which rightfully so but also it's like that feels so crappy for those people because like exactly what my last episode was about yeah i haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet since it just came (laughs) out i'm catching up on a lot of my podcasts yeah so they they get away from you you start finding a whole new that you like and all of a sudden you've got like yeah i follow about six yeah i follow follow about six so that's a lot of you've got a lot of listening to catch up on Oh, yeah, I do. That's right. There's only a couple occupied, so you'll be fine. You'll catch that up in no time. Just a couple. Yeah, just a couple. It's fine. <laughs> you said you, you're looking at running a program in the hospital. Like, what? what's the program? What Have you have you planned that yeah. yet? Or is that something that you're yet to design? Or, like, what are you actually going to do? Yeah, so they the hospital that I'm going to be working with, they already do have um, an adolescent and young adult eating disorder inpatient program. Um but there is, I'm not going to say, but because it very is, it's very good that they have an OT on staff, but that one OT has to cover everyone in the hospital and they don't just treat eating disorders. They treat all mental health. Okay. It's not a, it's not a very big mental health hospital, yep. but it's still a mental health hospital. Still, and it's a big workload for one person. Yeah. 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 And, um, in my research that I did, 1.8% of OTs in America work in a mental health setting. How many? 1.8%. That's, I, I would almost put money that probably at least a third, if not more, in Australia work in mental health. Yeah. 1.8%. Mm-hmm. Out of and there are a lot of OTs in America. Yeah, and one point eight. That's nuts. I've I, I yeah. knew it was low. I didn't know it was that low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm like, this is not okay, because um, we deal so much with that psychosocial piece. Huh. Yeah, and um, so what I plan on doing is providing the behavioral health technicians, their training on an education on how they can best help their patients who are struggling with eating disorders, providing nursing with education, um, therapists, like counselors there. And I would probably do a lot of interprofessional work together. Um, and the OT that's on staff, I'm so excited to work with him. He seems phenomenal. He's been there for quite a while now and has worked in mental health for a really long time. Excuse me. And he's like, oh yeah, bring it on. We love her. We love, like the 
I don't know what this woman does, but someone who was very high up and important in that hospital, when I was presenting my project, like, this is what I want to do for you. She was like, I'm here for five minutes, but I just want to say, I love this project. I love OT. I want you to come here. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, sold. Like yeah. I have my, I have my site now. Great. But yeah. So just kind of providing that education to, um, and hopefully enhancing what is already built at that behavioral health hospital, um, by going to Colorado, observing my expert mentor for a week, um, because I didn't have a psychosocial rotation yep. for field work one because of COVID. Yeah. Yep. My first field work that I'm in right now is my first field work that I've ever been on because COVID shut. I didn't have any field work because of COVID. It was all online. That's hard. Yeah. And also I didn't really have a OT based psychosocial course at my school because we were taught by a psychologist, not an OT. Okay. So it was basically like retaking psych 101. Just like learning about the diagnoses, yeah. symptoms, medications, that's it. Because legally she can't teach us OT. interventions to do. Yeah. Because she's not a, she's not an OD. So we are very blessed at my school to have a mental health OT at our school that's a professor. She's my expert mentor. She's my faculty mentor for my project. And she is teaching psychosocial for the first time this semester. Um, so she's like, so like yeah, yeah. So she's starting like brand new. Awesome. Um, and she is going to try to give me like a crash course, yeah. two week crash course before I even go to Colorado on here's everything that I think is important that you need to know. Yeah, that's that's my job at our university that's what i do i teach that oh so i'm psychosocial yep uh so the i've heard many other universities not just in the states but around the world that just don't have it's not that they don't want to it's just that they don't have the staff that have the experience in order to do it and now like hearing that there's only 1.8 like that's now I understand why, because that's, yeah. you know, if you take 1.8 and you're supposed to take at least one staff member for every university in order to cover that yeah. aspect of content, then mm-hmm. there's going to be even less people actually working in the field. It's, that's oh, yeah. nuts. Yeah, because a lot, all of, nearly all of my professors have um, either part-time or PRN jobs yeah, at yeah. acute care hospitals, outpatient clinics, whatever they choose, wherever they choose to work that they're passionate about. Um, And they get one clinic day a week. So most, because they have to teach the rest of the time. Mm. In my school, the more, like now we have two seasons of enrollment. We have a spring enrollment, which that's the cohort that I'm in. I'm a spring cohort and we have a fall cohort. Okay. Yep. So I started in January of 2020 and we also have a fall cohort that starts in August. Yeah. So you have double the students, double the work to grade. Double the rotation of subjects. Double the rotations. And it's year round. We also have summer classes too. So. God, they don't want to make it easy. 
No, they don't. I mean, they also want to get us out in a good amount of time because it's a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're really lucky to have to have her on staff because she already has taught me so much and she hasn't even retaught me psychosocial yet. So I'm really excited for when that time comes to have that crash course. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited yeah. to see how it all goes. I know. Yeah. And I'm taking a couple uh, continuing ed courses too during my capstone to have those uh, as deliverables, um, which I will also be creating an Instagram too okay. um, for the as a deliverable for the project. I really wanted to start it like when I reached out to you to record this, but I'm like, I really want to count it as a deliverable because if I start it before my capstone, yeah, yeah. It can't Don't count. Do that. Yeah. Yeah. Just wait. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I have like a lot of stuff already that I've prepped that I'm going to be posting and stuff. But, we can um, we can let everybody know what it is once you start it. There's no rush. Oh, so, yeah. Make sure it counts. That's kind of important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm going to be taking the um, embodied recovery continuing education course. Yep. Um, it's an eating disorder focused continuing education course that's trauma-based um, for mental health professionals. Um, so any profession can do it, working nice. with someone with an eating disorder. And then um, the American Occupational Therapy Association actually has a, um, a continuing education course on OT practice in eating disorders too. Okay. Don't so I've seen that one. Um, I think it's free. I want to say it's free. That might be but not for me. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to hold my breath though, because I, I am an AOTA member, so yeah. I think for myself it would be free then. Yep, free is good. Yeah, especially when you're in debt. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole nother topic. That one. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll have to get you back on once you've done the project and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, thank you so much. This was awesome. It was so nice to put a face to your voice. Even if it wasn't the face you were expecting. Even if it wasn't the face (laughs) I was expecting, that's all right. That's okay. For those, obviously, that wouldn't have heard our pre-recorded conversation, she was expecting a long-haired surfer, apparently. So imagine her bitterly like, imagine a bit of disappointment with a short haired not surfer person. She doesn't, just what I doesn't even live even remotely close to anywhere that you could surf. So uh, that's just what I picture for everyone that lives in Australia. When I hear the accent, I'm like long hair and surfer boy. Yeah. <laughs> nah, never even been surfing in my life. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> that's all right. So we'll let everyone not, know not- the Instagram once you once the project starts, we'll we'll push yeah. out the Instagram, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, people can check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. This Absolute was awesome. Pleasure. Thank you for for yeah. coming out and being open and honest and sharing so much of yourself. Um, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I've very much enjoyed it. Yeah, you're welcome. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. 
If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.